well, as part of the family time that we have in my home, we read the Bible together, but I've been reading through a book of missionary stories with my children. I want them to hear stories of people who go to the outer parts of the world to reach unreached people groups. I want them to have a big view of God and a big view of the world. And one of the ways I think to do that is to introduce them to powerful Christian testimonies. People who have gone and suffered for Christ who have endured hostility and sickness and disease and poverty and premature death, all for this central mission, which is to fulfill the mission of Christ. And I just want to share a few of these names with you of missionaries. Uh, Some of these you might know. William Carey. Carey laid the foundation for modern missions. He had a burden to reach the people of India, and he went across the world and endured great hardship. His son Peter died of dysentery. His wife went insane. His ministry partner spent all of their money. And after seven years in India, Carrie did not see a single convert. Then there was Adoniram Judson. Judson is known as the father of American missions. He arrived in Burma in 1813. He labored faithfully but saw very few results. Five long years passed before Judson was able to baptize his first convert. He once said, winning a convert in those regions was like trying to pull out the eye tooth of a live tiger. After 12 years, he was able to gather a small flock of 18 converts to form the very first church in Burma. Or there was Robert Morrison. Morrison was the first missionary to China. Seven years passed before he baptized his first convert, and the number of people who came to Christ through his ministry remained very small until his death. Or there was John Williams. John Williams was the first Christian missionary to the New Hebrides. As soon as he arrived on the island, he was clubbed to death and eaten by cannibals the very people that he went there to reach. Or there was Samuel Zwemer. Zwemer was a missionary to the Muslim world. After laboring for decades, he found the opposition to the gospel so unbelievably strong that after 40 years of ministry, he only led 12 Muslims to Christ. 40 years. Or there was Hudson Taylor probably the most well-known among these names. He was a missionary to China. He adopted the dress and the culture of the Chinese so as to be more effective in his work. He lost his wife and several children to disease. He suffered with crippling infirmities, and he labored for many years before he saw any fruit. And then there's Jonah. A Hebrew prophet who preached one sermon in one afternoon in the midst of a massive city and hundreds of thousands of people repented and turned to God. 
This is what we have seen over the last few weeks. Jonah is sent to sent as a missionary to the nation of Assyria, and God gives him a commission to go and preach to the capital city of Nineveh. And rather than having a zeal to do the will of God and to reach these people, he turns in the opposite direction and runs from God's calling. History has seen a lot of great missionaries, and certainly Jonah was the worst. Not because of his ineffectiveness, but because of his unwillingness. This was a prophet of Yahweh. He heard the voice of God. He was in a very small group of men chosen by God to be prophets to the nation of Israel and sometimes to the surrounding nations. And not only does he run from the calling... But when God finally gets his attention and redirects his course, he goes to Nineveh, but he goes reluctantly. Jonah preaches the message, the city repents, and what we're going to consider this afternoon is this bizarre, emotional, disgruntled missionary prophet. He's angry, he's bitter, he's defiant. And he throws a massive temper tantrum, not because of his missionary failures, but because of his missionary success. Jonah is angry because of the repentance of the Ninevites and because of the mercy of God. If you have your Bible open, just as Richard read for us, I want to back up one verse, and instead of starting in chapter 4, verse 1, I want to catch the last verse of chapter 3. Jonah 3.10 When God saw what they did, that is the Ninevites humbling themselves and repenting, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The ESV says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. You might have a footnote there that it says literally in the Hebrew, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Now if you look back at the previous verse, we know clearly what the it is. The it was God relenting of the disaster. So God spared the city, and Jonah saw it as evil. Verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now this is the first time in the whole book we get a picture of why Jonah was running. I've mentioned this verse a couple times already. 
But if you sit down and read the verse, read the book through, you don't get the idea of why he's running until almost the end. He refused God's calling because he did not think the Assyrians deserved God's mercy. He knew why God was sending him. He was sending him because he wanted to have mercy on them and he wanted to forgive them and that is totally unacceptable as far as Jonah is concerned. Now, I don't want to rehash again what was so bad about these Ninevites. I read last week a uh, scroll that a king of Assyria had written about how barbaric they were to their enemies and Jonah the prophet of Israel is a man from a country who are enemies of the Assyrians. And so he becomes furious that God would even consider forgiving people like that. In fact, notice what he says to God. I would rather die. I would rather die. Now, this is an interesting narrative here because what we discover is that Jonah has a a fundamental misunderstanding of God's mercy and he has a misunderstanding about the magnitude of his own sin. Jonah's problem is that he sees the great evil of the Ninevites but he does not see the great evil of Jonah. Now, is this not part of our broken condition you can easily see the sins of your neighbors and yet oftentimes is it not true you do not see your own sins this is why jesus says do not say to your brother let me remove the speck from your eye he says first remove the plank from your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye In other words, don't try to go and correct someone's sin until you first deal with yours. Then you can see clearly. That puts everything back into perspective. And yet, is it not true that some of our personal sins are so insidious that they are hidden from us and we don't even recognize them? You are good at keeping things contained... You are good at keeping things under wrap. In fact, you're so good at it, you deceive yourself sometimes. But we come to church and we interact with other Christians and we keep our sins hidden and we become very good at it and we live in a society of people who historically have become very good at it, although nowadays it's almost like there aren't any more boundaries. But if you are among those today who think, you know what, I'm not that bad, and the preacher talks about sin, and he talks about evil and judgment, but I'm really not that bad, let me give you a, uh, something to consider today. Let's say, you who are good at concealing your sin, let's say everything that you thought was verbalized, Maybe if you had a loudspeaker connected to your belt or something. And everything you, you thought was just barked out of that speaker. In other words, you couldn't contain it anymore. 
And so you meet someone you don't really like, and you're being all polite on the outside, and what's really happening inside is, this guy's an idiot, and I'm being polite because we're in church. Okay? Everything you thought was verbalized. How, do, how would that change things? You'd have to stay home. In fact, the reason people get, so much, get into so much trouble when they get drunk is because the filter that is normally keeping things contained is now removed and their lips get loose and the truth really comes out. And they either say inappropriate things or they start speaking the truth about how they really feel and then the next day they have to call and apologize and say, I'm sorry I said those things. I was drunk. Well, what really happened was the the alcohol was just the agent that was removing the inhibitions. In, In other words, the person was no longer to keep it all contained. They became exposed for a little while. We are all inwardly corrupt, and while we put on a good show... Every once in a while, we come face to face with the reality of things. Hopefully, you're not out there getting blasted drunk and telling people what you really think, but sometimes it comes out in your anger, does it not? And then the next day, you say, I'm sorry I said those things. I didn't mean it. I was angry. Well, more truthfully, you did mean it, and you were trying to hurt the person. But with Jonah here, he's not able to see that he is just as guilty as the people that he is going to preach to. He is just as guilty as the Ninevites, but what he thinks is, these are great sinners and I'm not like that. That's Jonah's attitude. That's why he's mad at the mercy of God. These are great sinners, I'm not that bad. And while it's true that Jonah most likely never engaged in the kind of brutality that we heard the Assyrians engaged in, Jonah, just like you and me, had decades and decades of sin against God that is piled as high as the heavens. Which means that puts him in the same category as them. Jonah sinned against God just like we do, every day in thought, word, and deed, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. Not only by what he did, but sin is also by what we do not do. We don't do righteously. In fact, one of the purposes of God's law is to reveal our true condition. You and I will create our own moral standard and we'll say, this is what I think goodness is. And then God gives His law which shows us what real goodness is. And we are to measure our lives by that. So Jonah, have you always loved God with your whole heart? Has He always spoken the truth? Did Jonah always honor his father and mother? Did he always love his neighbor as himself? Did he always give to God and others sacrificially? Did he always, uh, did he never slander or gossip against his neighbor? 
never coveted his neighbor's possessions, never lusted after a woman, never was angry without cause. Jonah, like us, was guilty on every count, I imagine. He is just like we are. He sinned again and again and again, tens of thousands of times. Did he ever murder like the Assyrians? Probably not. But he had such hatred for others that even here, he hates his neighbors so much he does not want to see them forgiven. And Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you have violated God's law when it comes to murder. It's murder in the heart. And maybe the worst of all is that he hates the extent of God's mercy. So I wonder, and as I was studying this week, I wanted to ask you the question, have you ever taken issue with the grace of God? Have you ever been angry at God because of the extent of His mercy? This will tell you a lot about yourself. Now, I've kind of developed a hobby recently. I'm very interested in this genre called true crime. It's called true crime because it's not fictional crime. It's like these are real stories. So there's books and documentaries and podcasts, and they look into some of the darkest crimes often serial killers, and they walk you through all of the details of the evils that they did, and then they take you through the process of how they were apprehended and sentenced and judged. It's very devotional. And I find it interesting how many notorious killers came to Christ later in life. I mean, there's a... This is a big category of people, so it's not like a lot of them, but some of the names you would recognize. Ted Bundy, serial killer, kidnapper, rapist, murdered 30 or more young women, came to Christ later in life, did an interview with James Dobson. He he did not want to do any interviews with the press. He said, the only interview I will do is with James Dobson. And he shared with, with Dobson on his show what an effect pornography had on him and how it it corrupted his thinking and he wanted to warn people. David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam, randomly went around New York terrorizing, killing people, shooting them, wounding them, destroying people's lives. Very solid Christian today. Leads multiple ministries in prison. Jeffrey Dahmer, committed the rape, murder, and dismemberment of 17 men and boys. He said in an interview, he professed Christ, and he said in an interview that it was his evolutionary worldview that he grew up with that he believed gave him license to to, to do the brutal things that he did because he adopted the worldview that there is no higher authority that he must submit to. So if he can get away with it on earth, it's okay. Carla Faye Tucker, wonderful Christian woman, murdered a man and a woman in cold blood with a pickaxe. I remember as a brand new Christian, I would see interviews with her and just, I would just weep 
I don't know. She was just so full of Christ. It was just remarkable. So all of these people, horrendous crimes, they repented. God says to them, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Forgiven. Made like Jesus. Given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, credited to their account, so that when they stand before God, the Father sees the righteousness of Jesus. Does that trouble anyone? Do you think the families of the people who were murdered would be troubled at the thought of that person going to heaven? Now, if you understand grace, if you understand what we all deserve, it shouldn't bother you at all. You know who it bothers, really? The religious types who think, I am clean and I am moral and I am not like them. That's what Jonah's doing. Jonah's putting himself in a separate category than the Ninevites and saying, I am not like they are. These are the religious types who find grace offensive because they think heaven's all about being good and it's about being as good as we can be and God's going to look down on all the happy, shiny, good people and say, come on in, you've earned it. And that is not the plan or the message. I'm going to say something shocking here. Controversial. Do you realize that in your natural state, apart from the work of God, you are more like Jeffrey Dahmer than you are like Jesus Christ? Everyone here is capable of the grossest and most awful and violent sins imaginable. And you might say, oh, I would never do that. Oh, I could never do that. I bet King David probably thought he could never do that. King David loved God from a boy. He's the only man in Scripture that says he's the man after my own heart, God says. And he was the psalmist of Israel. He was like Israel's worship leader. He wrote the music for the worship of the nation and he killed a man. Or Moses. I bet Moses never thought he was capable of murder. He killed a man. It's amazing what people can do given the right circumstances, the right influences. It's amazing what happens if you take away all of the food in a city. All of these well-mannered people all of a sudden turn into monsters. We are all capable of doing unimaginable things. Robert Murray McShane once said, The seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. So, there's a way that we separate ourselves from others that is truly deceptive. It hinders our understanding of grace because we think of ourselves as morally superior, and yet in reality, we're all made of the same corruptible stuff. 
Now Jonah is a prophet. He should, he should know these things, but he, he can't see it. That's why he makes this outrageous statement in verse 3. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why does Jonah say it would be better for him to die? Because Jonah's saying, if they're invited into the kingdom, then I don't want to be part of it. I would rather die. We see a very similar religious spirit among the Pharisees, don't we? Jesus encounters the Pharisees often. Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees separated themselves from those people. They would not even make eye contact with them. They would cross the street lest they brush up against them. And here's Jesus at a meal with them, laughing with them, drinking wine with them. Who is this so-called rabbi? But Jesus said in response, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, if you don't think you're sick, you're never going to look for a physician. And Jesus came and He gathered together those people who knew that they were sick. It seems that Jonah would have fit right in with the Pharisees. At least in regard to the people of, the, 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 of Assyria, the Ninevites. Heaven was for people like Jonah and not for people like them. So let me ask you this afternoon, I think it's the most obvious application of this whole chapter, even the whole book. Who is your Nineveh? Who is your Nineveh? Who are those in society you would never interact with, you immediately set yourself apart from, and you would hate the idea of being called to go out and reach them for Christ? Maybe homosexuals? You hate how they have profaned the sanctity of marriage? You hate how they have introduced all kinds of ideas into our society that God speaks against. They go against God's very law, against holiness, and they're being normalized in society, and you hate that. But do you hate them? Do you look at those people and, and think like Jonah that you want them to be destroyed? Years ago, Benny Hinn, please don't listen to Benny Hinn, he spoke in an arena, this was in the early mid-90s, 
And he said God told him something. Anytime someone says they're directly hearing from God, change the channel, walk away. He said God told him that in 1998, God was going to destroy all the homosexuals by fire. And this arena that Benny spoke in erupted in applause as if this was some great wonderful thing. If God destroyed all the homosexuals in America, would you applaud? Or would you weep? Do you desire to see them saved? Do you desire to see them made trophies of God's grace? Who's your Nineveh? Maybe political enemies who are far on the other spectrum. Maybe Muslims, the number one persecutor of Christians in the world. Maybe people who are pouring over our borders. Maybe homeless people. Maybe drug addicts. You just want to avoid all of these kinds of people. Who is the group that you couldn't care less about? And if we're being honest, more precisely, you despise. Now, Jonah's problem is that he has a terrible memory because how quickly he has forgotten God's mercy to him when he was sinking down to the bottom of a deep, dark ocean like we saw in chapter 2. It was Jonah's sin that brought him there. It was his rebellion that put him in such a predicament. And God was merciful to him and rescued him. And yet now Jonah turns around and says, but don't be merciful to them. And so Jonah is angry. God responds in verse 4, The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now God, we know, often asks questions in the Bible, not because He does not know the answer, but because He wants to probe into the person's heart. So Adam sins in Genesis 3 and he goes and hides himself and God says, Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Well, God knows exactly what's going on, but he wants to bring out what's going on in Adam. And so here he asks Jonah, is this a righteous anger, Jonah? Is this a good state, emotional state that you're in? What's going on in your heart that makes you so angry here, Jonah? It's like he's saying to Jonah, don't forget where you have come from. (laughs) And that's a very good lesson for us all to learn who have come to Christ. Don't forget where you have come from. There's a passage in in Titus chapter 3 where Paul tells Titus, remind your people of these things. And he says this, Titus 3, verse 2, Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, and and envy hated by others and hating one another. So you could become like a Pharisee if you forget where God has brought you from and how God has cleaned you up and as God, how God has given you a desire to live for Him. <clears throat> and then go and turn around on the same people you used to run with and treat them like Jonah treats the Ninevites. Don't forget where you came from. Jonah forgets what God has done for him. Verse 5 continues, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So God says he's going to spare the city. Jonah, still hoping that God might change his mind, goes up on the hill where he's got a nice view grabs himself a tub of buttered popcorn, and he's waiting for the show. And he's hoping. Well, they turn to God in a day. Maybe they'll turn away from him the next day. Now, Jonah wants to see this city destroyed, which makes me think of how many people in the Bible he is unlike. He's not like Abraham. Do you remember in Genesis 18? God told Abraham that he was going to destroy the city of Sodom. And what does Abraham do? He starts bartering with God. Lord, if there are 50 righteous people, you wouldn't destroy the city then, would you? God says, no, I wouldn't destroy the city then. Well, what about 40? Wouldn't you spare the city for 40? And then he goes to 30 and 20 and to 10. And yes, Abraham had a nephew there who he wanted to rescue, but I believe he had a burden for the city and he did not want to see God destroy it. Jonah was not like Abraham. Jonah is not like Jesus. When the religious leaders rejected Jesus once and for all and he knew that was going to be the judgment upon them, he sat and wept over the city. Jonah is not like the angels. We are told that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. How much more would there be rejoicing over an entire city? Jonah should be rejoicing along with heaven, but he's not. Jonah, obviously, is not like God. God is full of mercy and is compassionate. No one is as compassionate as God. You find the most compassionate person on the face of the earth and they are still 10,000 miles away from the level of compassion that God has. And yet Jonah does not have compassion for these people. One indicator of how close or far a person is from God is by how they love others. This is what we've been studying in Wednesday nights in our Bible study in 1 John. Love becomes this indicator of your relationship to God. The person who says, I love God, but hates his neighbor is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
And so Jonah, we discover, is not in a good place right now with God. Now, we've been doing a kind of a psychological profile on Jonah here. It's going to get a lot deeper in this next section. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. So, three things that God appoints here, all intended to expose what's going on in Jonah's heart and to show him so that he sees it. First, God appoints a plant to grow up quickly as a way to provide shade as Jonah's on the hill waiting for the show. This word appoint, we've already seen back in chapter 1 when God appointed this giant fish. And so Jonah is enjoying the shade of this plant and he goes from being exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad. But then in verse 7, the next day God appoints a worm to destroy the plant and it dies. And so his shade, his comfort is now gone. And then in verse 8, God appoints a hot wind and the sun and the wind are so harsh on this Jewish prophet that once again he laments his life and says that he would rather die than live. If Jonah was examined by professionals today, no doubt he would be diagnosed as having bipolar disorder. He's down, down, way down, exceedingly angry. He's up, up, way up, exceedingly glad. And then he's down, down, down again. But why is God doing all this? Why does God give him a plant and then destroy the plant and then make the weather unbearable? And I think the answer is that God, through all of these things, is asking Jonah a question. Where does your hope lie? Where does your hope lie? What does your life consist of? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? Can you say, along with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? And if I die, I get to be with Jesus. But if I live, I get to serve Jesus. And all of the trials and tribulations that come through life are all filtered through that kingdom lens. Or, Jonah, his emotions are all over the place. When he's happy, he's really happy. His things are going well for him. But when he's... Sad, he's really sad because things are not going well for him. And God does not want Jonah and God does not want you to be tossed around like that with your emotions. 
Christians are living for another world, as we talked about earlier in Romans 8, a future world that is coming down, and because all of our hope is to be in that world, we are not to be tossed around in our emotions by good day, bad day kind of thinking. If we exist for God, and our outlook is that we live in relationship to Him, and the good that comes and the bad that comes is all by His design, then we can have joy that transcends all of the good and the bad in this life. Otherwise, you get a check in the mail that you weren't expecting and you're happy, and then you get a bill in the mail that you weren't expecting and you're sad, or things are going well with the marriage and you're happy, and things get rocky with the marriage and you're sad, and all of a sudden you're tossed about and blown about and you're just hoping that everything goes well for you. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be happy and it doesn't mean that there are not times where you can be sad, but what God wants for you is so much greater than that. He wants you to have joy so that that joy in Him carries you through all of the trials of life. So I ask you, is your hope in the everlasting God or is your hope in your circumstances? Because that's another application I see here with Jonah. God's doing a sort of profile with Jonah here. He's he's exposing what's hidden in Jonah here. And what we see is Jonah's hope is not in the everlasting God. His hope is in being comfortable in where he's at. Shady plant happy, dead plant hopeless. Now if you think that's not very loving for God to give something good to Jonah only to take it away again the next day, then maybe you don't understand how God often operates. He is in the work of conforming us into the image of His Son, and He does that through blessing, and He does that through cursing, the good days and the bad days, and for us to transcend all of that into having Fellowship with God through it all. And so you can ask in your day-to-day life, what is God doing in the midst of this? What is God doing in the midst of this heartache? What is God doing in the midst of this prosperity? So, continuing, and we're almost done, He comes to Jonah with another series of questions. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So, 
we see here God's object lesson with the plant comes into clear focus now. Jonah's angry about the death of this plant which sprung up in a day and was gone the next. And he's not angry or upset or in turmoil that hundreds of thousands of people are going to perish. In fact, the reference here in verse 11, 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left is a reference, of course, to children. Little babies and toddlers. And God's saying, don't you even care that little kids are going to die? And then He throws in cattle, which the word can also mean animals or livestock. And I think the point God is making here is, consider the innocence here in this city. I mean, you have children and you have animals and they did not contribute to the evil that has come up before me. And yet you're perfectly content to sit back and watch it all burn even though they are also going to burn? But Jonah has become so insensitive, so hard-hearted, so self-absorbed, so angry, that he does not even consider the suffering of innocence, nor the salvation of souls. I'll say it again, if the angels rejoice in heaven and Jonah gets angry, what does that say about his spiritual condition? And if you are anything like Jonah today, what does that say about your spiritual condition? Are you concerned for the lost? Are you more passionate about giving to missions so that the gospel can go to unreached people groups throughout the world? Or are you more passionate about buying your next electronic toy which is going to be obsolete in three years from now? Or your next trip? Or your next big purchase? God is saying to Jonah here, look what your heart grieves over, Jonah. Your priorities are all out of order. And Jonah is more concerned about his own personal comfort as he sits upon that hill waiting for the city to perish than he is about the people perishing. How about you today? Where does your heart lead you when it comes to the lost? Do you have a burden for people in this world? Do you have a burden for people in this town? Do you have a burden for people across the world? Or is your attitude, they can go to hell for all I care? Now, as I conclude, I just want to kind of summarize. There's so much application in this chapter. I just want to give you a very brief Reminder of where we have been. First point of application. Do you realize how ungodly you really are 
Or do you have a mindset that puts you in a special category that you're not like those people out there? Do you love God's mercy towards sinners? Do you share God's compassion for the lost? Are you trusting in God or your circumstances? Do you care more about material goods than you do people? You know, this was recorded for us. I mean, this, this is not a letter that was written to us, a, a, you know, a book that was written to us, but it was written for us. And the point is that we see this exchange and we look at ourselves and we say, am I more like God or am I more like Jonah? And then possibly the most surprising part in this whole book is that it just ends where it ends. You ever turn the page and be like, well, there's got to be a little bit more, right? God asks him these questions and then it just ends. And I can imagine if this was a manuscript that was brought to a publishing house, they would look at it and say, it's a good story, the ending's terrible. You've you got to change the ending. I mean, it just stops. He says, don't you care about the kids, Jonah? Don't you care about the cattle, Jonah? And then there's no closure. Well, does he care? Does Jonah repent along with the Ninevites? What happened to him? What happened to Nineveh? There's no conclusion. The curtain falls the players exit the stage and all of these questions just kind of hang on the audience. Kind of like a weight for us to bear and to consider. And it is my hope and prayer that we would consider these things today. Let's pray. Our Father, You are rich in mercy you are abounding in loving kindness. You would even gather to Yourself people like us. You would even invite people like us into Your heavenly home and give us a Savior so that we would be forgiven and redeemed and made righteous by faith. Oh God, thank You that You saved the lost. If there are any here today who don't know You, I pray that they would trust in You by faith. I pray that they would call out to You for salvation and that You would respond and deliver them and forgive them now and forever. And so, Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Help us that we might be more like You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.